Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. The foods we eat don't make us healthier. Michael Pollan says we have a national eating disorder. He kicks off the University of Washington's Weight and Wellness Speakers Series April 8th with a talk titled just that. Michael Pollan, it's good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, Steve. Michael Pollan writes about the ways people are shaped by and in turn shape the things we grow and ingest. His books include Cooked, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and The Botany of Desire. Since 2003, he has been the John S. and James L. Knight Professor of Journalism at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism, Director of the Knight Program in Science and Environmental Journalism. In addition to teaching, he talks about food, agriculture, health, and the environment. The article that was in the Washington Post, Mark Bittman, Michael Pollan, Ricardo Salvador, and uh, Olivier Deschuter, How a National Food Policy Could Save Millions of Lives. You, uh, you note that Barack Obama and, and Michelle Obama came in with a lot of, well, hope, maybe, from you and a lot of folks like you, but uh, he's been stymied or he hasn't acted as fast. There's a little bit of contradiction in his policies. What's going on? Well, I don't know exactly what's going on inside. I don't have any kind of privileged access, uh, and I don't have their ear. Um, but I think that uh, at the beginning of the administration, there was a, there was good reason to be hopeful that they were going to uh, drive some change on food issues, and they have to some extent. Um, uh, Barack Obama during the campaign made it clear that he really understood what was involved in the links between our public health problem and our um, our agricultural policies and the links between energy and, and uh, climate change and food and all of which were you know led you to believe he would he would put some effort into into reform um, what he did instead was uh, I think encourage his wife to to um, dedicate her uh, political capital to to uh, childhood obesity and and the food system as well, and that that was a decision that may have been made because of the recognition that maybe the maybe the moment for reform of food wasn't quite ripe yet, and that given the the, the all the headaches, um, all the problems on his plate, uh, pushing on this one was just not something that. It, it was justifiable um, politically, um, but that you know by raising consciousness about the issue, which I think Michelle Obama has succeeded in doing, um, that that might begin to create a constituency for change. Um, and you know, time will tell. In the long, long uh, arc of history, we may find that, that was a brilliant strategy, and that the ground has been laid for a subsequent president to do something more substantive. Um, I think in his choice of, uh, you know, who was going to run the Department of Agriculture, um, he ended up with a pretty conventional voice there doing the usual um, defending of big ag interests, um, you know, uh, farm state uh, and uh, agricultural processors uh, have done, you know, have no complaints, I, I don't think, about Vilsack. Uh there were below him some very good appointments that did some very interesting things uh, in terms of promoting local food. And, and, uh, and indeed, the local food economy has grown uh, substantially uh, under, under Obama and with some encouragement. Um, so there have been some good things. And uh, we're seeing even in, in the big agricultural policies, 
Crop insurance, for example, has been reformed so that smaller farmers and diversified farmers can take advantage of it. That's that's a very new thing, and that happened uh, under his watch, although I don't think that was his doing. Um, that was some people in Congress. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm disappointed in a lot of things that you know haven't been done, uh, and a lot of business as usual on, uh, on food policy. And I don't think we fully reckon to the fact that we have a set of agricultural policies that are directly undermining uh, public health and are directly undermining the climate goals that the president has set. And one question, I mean, he has been very aggressive in addressing climate change uh, relative to his predecessors. And it's curious that he hasn't looked at um, the food system, which generates, of course, about a third of greenhouse gases. And that's just off the table. Um, and I don't know why that is. Where would you start in terms of addressing the food system on, let's start with climate change, methane and, and, and methane emissions? Yeah, I would look at methane. I mean, you have to look at meat. You have to look at the way we're producing meat in this country, which is the biggest part of the uh, contribution to climate change uh, on the part of the food system. Um, I think, you know, you would want to discourage meat consumption and discourage beef consumption. Um, you would want to embrace something like Meatless Monday, for example, um, just to get some uh, traction on that issue. Um, I don't think people realize, but reducing meat consumption is a better way to reduce your carbon footprint than, you know, buying a hybrid. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. And, um, uh, and so I think that more attention to that issue would be good. I would also be spending a lot of, uh, of um, energy in, in the Department of Agriculture working on the whole issue of soil health. Um, if you can create incentives for farmers to sequester carbon in their soil, um, whether by uh, getting off of, of uh, chemical fertilizers or moving to a perennial pasture instead of, um, you know, growing grain for cattle um, or, uh, you know, any number of uh, spreading compost. There's a lot of things you can do. We now know that you can sequester large amounts of carbon in the soil, enough to make a dent in climate change. And at the same time, and this is really a form of geoengineering that's absolutely benign, uh, with, with, with no risks. At the same time, you're, you're getting all that carbon back in the soil. You're making the water holding capacity of the soil much better. Um, so you need less water. You can withstand drought. And you're increasing the fertility of the soil, too. I read so, You go ahead. I think that that's a win-win-win that, that you know, I can, I can easily see rewriting the farm bill in such a way to encourage farmers to uh, and reward farmers for for what they do to improve soil health now reward farmers that might be the key right you know i read a book called uh, the soil will save us that was a, yeah, a great book about I read that it too. and and um is it interests that keep that from happening or a system that just hasn't uh, grasped the way to implement the, those ideas I'm not sure. I mean, first of all, the research is fairly new and there still needs to be a stronger science base under it. Um, and, uh, you know, we're just doing the experiments now to show how you can sequester the most carbon and is it stable? Will it stay in the soil for a long time? Um, a lot of this has been figured out by farmers and now we need scientists to come in behind them and say, oh yeah, 
they're right. It does work. I mean, the farmers are way ahead of the scientists on this. Um, but you need the science if you're going to make policy. There's, there's no question. Uh, but you also have a lot of people that are profiting from the current system. I mean, you know, fertilizer is a huge business in this country. And it's a big part of the fossil fuel economy. But just to give you one idea, um, when Walmart was trying to reduce its carbon footprint, um, which they're very serious about, you know, they have a real commitment to sustainability, especially around carbon. They did, they did an audit of their entire supply chain, figuring out where they were uh, emitting the most greenhouse gases. And you would have thought it was, you know, heating their, their big box stores or driving these trucks all over the country or these boats going back and forth to China. But it, it turned out it was the fertilizer being applied to the corn crop at the base of the food chain that feeds the meat and that's, you know, that they sell in their stores and all the other products, the, the high fructose corn syrup and the sodas. Um, and that that fertilizer, the production of that fertilizer, and then the um, leakage of that fertilizer into the atmosphere, because uh, nitrogen fertilizer, when you put it on a wet field and if the plants don't take it up, it, it heads into the atmosphere as nitrous oxide, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. It's like methane. It's much, many times more potent than, uh, than carbon. Um, that's where the that's where the biggest problem was, and they're trying to address it now, figuring out how they can create incentives for their farmers to use less nitrogen on their crops. Um, so, you know, the first step is understanding where are we, um, where do we have the biggest problem, and then the next step is how can we solve it? But we can solve it. Are there enough options for the farmer to reduce the amount of fertilizers they use and still get the price? at the cost they need from a Walmart? Well, it's estimated that most farmers put twice as much fertilizer on than they need. And if you talk to them, they'll admit it and they'll say it's crop insurance. I'd want to err on the side of too much rather than too little. Um, and it's cheap. And uh, I think we need to penalize that kind of practice and uh, or tax it or somehow um, convince farmers to put the proper amount on. Now, one of the, the, the positive things of this data revolution going on in farming. Um, you have these companies now that can uh, make a map of your soils down to the square foot and tell you exactly how much fertilizer you need, how much water you need. And so we, we theoretically should be able to change the way we apply fertilizer so that we are that we will eventually have machines, spreader sprayers that actually are doing um, uh, you know, highly customized application of pesticides and fertilizers acre by acre or, or, or even square foot by square foot. So that will help too. Um, waste is a big part. But we also have um, compost. And, you know, when you add compost instead of fertilizer, you get a whole range of benefits. And more and more cities are composting their waste. So I think we need a big push to create compost, um, which solves several problems, obviously. You know, you, it's, it helps solve the food waste problem. It helps solve the garbage dump problem. I'm sorry, we call them transfer stations now, I guess, or, or landfills. And, um, and it helps solve the fertility problem. Um, so that's, that's an option too. Uh, so I think we have to just get a lot more creative about this and understand that the big goal is somehow figuring out a way to reduce the, the, the reliance of our food system on fossil fuels, whether it's to create fertilizer or pesticide or, or you know, running our machinery and move 
the ba- that the ecological basis of those farms, and that's the big change we need to see. And what that means is you 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 need your fields to be green all year long, so you're collecting as much sunlight as possible. Because right now, if you go to the Midwest, more than six months of the year, the fields are black. There's nothing on them. You're wasting all that solar energy that if you were capturing it in leaves and then tilling those leaves into the soil, you would be doing so much for your soil. But we don't do that. And we don't give farmers incentives to do it. You know, I remember uh, in one of your books or talks, the idea of, of how the ag extension system originally came to be, how important it was to re-educate farmers to the uh, health of their land, and then how that is, uh, well, in many places that's fallen by the wayside as we went back to hedgerow to hedgerow. Did you see in the last debate over the Farm Bill enough effort on the part of citizens like yourselves and others that uh, there were a few cracks in the, in the uh, wall against that? Do we, do we see more, or, and are there particular wedges that you think people need to apply? I think there, yeah, I think that the politics is starting to shift. I think you have a handful of people in the House who really get it. And, um, and I think the kind of monolith, I mean, one of the good things about the, the Tea Party is that, you know, they're very suspicious of government programs of all kinds, and they're taking a good hard look, some of them, at, at subsidies. And, um, and, you know, I don't think the goal is to eliminate subsidies. I don't think we're going to have a free market in agriculture anytime soon. But we should be getting more public interest in those subsidies than we do. And, um, and you see some people starting to talk that way. Um, you did have a couple of changes. You know, in general, we're moving from subsidies, per bushel subsidies, to crop insurance, which is a real mixed bag. I mean, because the way crop insurance is structured now, we're taking away your risk and you're planting corn in a marginal area that doesn't have enough water to grow corn without irrigation. Um, and you see a lot of farmers pushing corn land into places it shouldn't be because we, the taxpayer, are covering any risk. And that they're going to get 65 or 70% of the, the profits expected on that acreage, even if it's a disaster. That's, that's a huge mistake. Um, however, um, crop insurance begins to break down the line between industrial farming and organic or diversified local farming because now they're all eligible for crop insurance and that was never the case before it was very hard to get crop insurance if you were organic and if you were diversified you need you needed to get a different policy for each crop which is sort of ridiculous um if you're growing 50 crops which you know the best farmers are doing in California, you're not going to take out 50 policies. But now you can get a diversified farm, uh, kind of an umbrella policy over all that. So that's really encouraging. But there's no question, we have a very long way to go. And it's not going to happen until there is this top-down pressure to align our farm policies with our health goals and our environmental goals. And that's what that piece was about that we published. And one of the things that was very encouraging about that piece is we then did a kind of petition based on the piece to the White House um, calling for a national food policy. And we got people in every corner of the food movement who seldom agree about much to sign on to that call. Um, You know, people involved with animal rights, people involved with labor, uh, whether it's farm labor or fast food workers labor. Uh, people involved with sustainable agriculture, people involved with labeling and nutrition policy. 
everybody was willing to get behind that idea. And this idea that we need a national food policy to begin to rationalize what is really an incoherent system. Interesting, in this article you write that Mexico and uh, uh, Brazil yeah. have uh, national or citywide food policies. Why, why uh, were they able to implement these what, from your research? What did you find out? It's a good question. Um, I was in Brazil last summer, and, and they have some very interesting food policies, um, including a nutrition, um, uh, a new set of nutrition guidelines that are incredibly radical and um, that are basically their big message is they don't have a food pyramid. And they're not talking about nutrients. They're talking about don't eat processed foods, have meals with your family, um, eat at tables, you know, kind of food rulesy things uh, that are now official government policies. Um, why could they get away with that? I, I don't know where the, I don't know where Nestle was when they were, when they were formulating this and seeking comments, but I think part of the reason they can do this, uh, and in Mexico they have, um, you know, they, they're taxing soda and junk food in a really interesting experiment. We'll see, we'll see what happens. We'll see if it works. Um, I think that the political energy, um, that uh, distrusts and wants to contest multinational corporations in Latin America who are still have very clear memories and experience of imperialism. Um, it's, they see those companies selling food to them as um, a dark force and that they're willing to go after them, the public, and, and many people in the government too. And so they're not as beholden to those large companies. And in fact, they see those large companies as part of the problem in a way that Americans don't. So I think that that anti-imperialist rhetoric that the more left governments in South America have traditionally used uh, turns out to be very helpful when you're trying to curb the influence of people selling you junk food. You know, one of the things you wrote in this article, because of unhealthy diets, 100 years of progress in, in improving public health and extending lifespan has been reversed. You talk about kids having shorter lives, the rise of uh, type 2 diabetes. You know, the president has staked his, his career on that, that, that notion of that healthcare, that healthcare system is going to help improve the lives of children. At the same time, he has had to sort of walk back the cat a little bit on dealing with the causes of that, the high fructose, corn syrup, sodas. Do you see any, any light there in policies at this point? Not yet. I mean, you know, um, Obama broached the idea of a soda tax early in the administration and then went silent. Um, he's, whenever he's broached any of these things, somebody gets to him. <laughs> he stops broaching. Uh, he broached uh, labeling genetically modified food in the campaign. He'd said it once and never went near it again. Uh, and it hasn't done anything on that on that score that I'm aware of. Um, so I think we have to remember what a powerful uh, lobby the food industry is. And on some of these issues, like let's say curbing antibiotics in livestock, a really important issue where they've taken some steps. You know, I don't think that they're adequate. They have a voluntary program to reduce um, use of antibiotics in livestock. Um, you're up against two powerful industries there. You're, you're fighting big pharma and you're fighting the food industry. And, uh, you know, I, he doesn't have stomach for that many fights. Um, but he began in a promising way. The other, the other very promising beginning that nobody remembers anymore is 
they were really going to look at antitrust enforcement in agriculture and, and meatpacking. And they had a listening tour in Vilsack and um, uh, the attorney general holder went out and they, and they, and these farmers came and, and, and took great risks to speak to them about how the, the big meat packers were, were, were discriminating against small ranchers or fixing prices and, 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 um, and it was, you know, pretty damning testimony. And there was a lot of promises. Uh, and there was a very aggressive person at Justice working on, on antitrust. And then 2010 comes along and they just drop it with, with the Tea Party surge and all the rhetoric that, you know, uh, Obama's anti-business. Uh, that rhetoric had a, um, he's easy to spook, I have to say. Um, and that rhetoric sure spooked him on, uh, on anything that was going to give uh, discomfort business. Business. You know, we saw McDonald's saying they were going to, some of their workers are going to get a higher minimum wage. There is the higher wage. There is the uh, efforts in Washington State and other places to raise the minimum wage, $15. The federal government talks about it. Part of a national food policy, as you write, um, yeah. that uh, the food industry pays a fair wage to those it employs. That's all the way from the, from the field to serving it. I, where's, you know, given that, you know, the, the South American ability to, fight the corporations as a way of fighting imperialism, um, the effort to, to raise wages, that you got a big coalition of people to uh, sign on to the idea of a food policy. But who leads that? Is it going to take somebody from Kansas or Nebraska to lead that? We all eat. We all should be a part of the effort. And yet it's very difficult to create uh, that top-down uh, force you're talking about. Yeah, but there's also the bottom-up force. I mean, if you look at the, the fight over wages, um, you, you see some remarkable victories. Um, you now have a movement of fast food workers, uh, Food Chain Workers Alliance, um, that is, uh, has been very effective. And that's one of the reasons that McDonald's moved. Um, they've had a lot of protests. There was a, a big day of protest the other day. Uh, and, um, you know, Tens of thousands of fast food workers are, are going out on and boycotting and skipping a day's work. And they got the message. And that was organizing. That was bottom-up organizing. There's a woman here at Berkeley who's very involved with that effort, uh, Styra Jayarama and um, Food Chain Workers Alliance. And um, they've been very effective. And uh, so I think that's a real lesson to all of us, that that, that kind of organizing still works. So next steps, next steps for you as an advocate or next steps you'd like to see take place as bottom up or top down? Well, I think it's really encouraging that the food movement has gotten so serious about labor issues and that it is paying much more attention to farm worker issues and, and food chain worker uh, interests. And that's a, that's a big change in the last couple of years. Um, it was a it was a movement that really began with its interest in sustainable agriculture, organic farming, and uh, it was more of a consumer's issue than a producer's issue, and um, and people criticized the movement for being elitist in various ways, and you know I think those charges stung, and it's one of the reasons that you see a lot of people involved in the food movement taking very seriously these these issues uh, about the people who are feeding us, and uh, so that's that's. That's not a next step, but it's a current step that I think needs to be pushed harder um, and that the movement needs to embrace everybody and not just eaters, but food producers as well. Um, 
I think another very important issue is to inject food as an important question in the next election. Um, and that in the same way, we demand, and when I say we, I mean journalists, but also nonprofit groups of various kinds and NGOs, demand that candidates take positions on certain issues, whether it's gun control or abortion or financial reform or food stamps, um, and tell us what their food policy will be. Is it just more cheap calories by any means necessary? Is it, you know, a farm policy that supports public health? Is it, um, uh, you know, uh, help for small farmers and small producers who are getting crushed? Um, everybody needs to, to declare themselves. And the time to do that is during a campaign. And so you have a, an organization called Food Policy Action, which is a kind of consortium of different uh, food groups. But it's more of a political group. And it's not 501c3. It's the other one. Um, uh, I think that they're going to drive to, to and they now rate legislators. Um, for the first time, we have something like the legal conservation voters rating of legislators on various issues. Um, so I think injecting this issue into the next campaign is key. Uh, and, um, you know, yeah, I'll be working on that. And then do journalists get it? You know, journalists have often been criticized for not quite getting the context of their stories. As you read the stories, and you read the politics and the political coverage. It took a long time for journalists to get the context of climate change and what it meant. Yeah, they would, they would do the either or on the one hand, on the other hand. Do do you right. see journalists getting uh, the notion that food that they eat is integral to the lives we live and the way we live on the planet? Yeah, I mean, I think journalists also notice what readers care about, and um, readers really care about food. I mean, you know, look at the most emailed stories. They're often food stories and not just recipes. No. Um, and you have uh, a lot of attention to food issues. I mean, at the New York Times alone, you have Michael Moss, who's been writing, you know, amazing things. Uh, I think he's just left to write a book, but he was doing an investigative reporting for the Wednesday food section and, and did, you know, did some award-winning work on food chain issues. Mark Bittman is, has a weekly editorial on, on food issues. I mean, this is new, you know, this is, this is a kind of amount of resources going into food you haven't seen in journalism. And um, there's somebody at the Washington Post who's doing really good journalism around food issues. So I think as a beat, it's coming of age and, um, and starting to get some resources. And it is an issue that most editors-in-chief thought was really trivial uh, not very long ago. It was, you know, recipe columns for the Wednesday, you know, supermarket supplement. Um, and that's changing. I think they're realizing that there's uh, interest in, in not just in um, how to eat, but how food gets produced and, and, and the policies involved. You know... Um... When we used to talk, you, 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 um, on the radio, you alluded to how this had become more than just a writing assignment for you, mm. and and you were a little reluctant about it at the time, as I remember. But now it seems—is it fair to say? Well, how do you feel about it now? This topic and your embrace of it. Well, you know, I feel like I'm part of a movement, and uh, it's more than just a subject. Uh, you know, it's a bit of a cause for me. And in fact, I'm talking about it more these days than I'm writing about it. Um, you know, I've been writing about some other topics recently. And uh, although at the moment I'm, I'm working on a little piece about food, um, but I'm very involved in all in food politics. I'm very involved in 
driving change wherever I can figure out how to do it. And I'm very involved in talking to audiences. Um, and I'm working on documentaries too. I'm working on two food related documentaries right now. One is uh, uh, a PBS uh, documentary based on In Defense of Food, uh, which was my 2008 book uh, about nutrition. And in fact, that's where the phrase national eating disorder comes from. It's in that book. Um, and then I'm working on a Netflix uh, series based on Cooked um, with Alex Gibney. Uh, very unusual kind of project for him. Um, but, you know, much sunnier than what he usually writes about or, or makes films about. Um, so I'm still very involved and... Um, and I'm more comfortable, I think, in, in the role of advocate than I was when I was publishing on this regularly for the New York Times. And that was a little, I had to be a little, I don't know, um, careful about, about the line between my political activity and my, my journalism. But now I'm not doing that much journalism about it. Uh, so I, I feel like it would be coy for me to, to pretend I didn't have strong views <laughs> on where we needed to go. Well, what do you mean you're not doing that much journalism about it? You're, you're doing a lot of writing about it, but it's not journalism? No, I do some writing about it. I do kind of more opinion writing about it. I'm, I'm working see. on a column right now, for example, um, uh, for the Times Magazine uh, and these these films. But my, my long-form journalism, the last long piece I wrote was about psychedelics for The New Yorker. And before that, I wrote a long piece about plant intelligence also for the New Yorker. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing a broader science writing right now than, uh, than just food. Um, the reason I'm but, asking, because I'm curious, is there a reason that you're drawing a line and making a distinction between your journalism and your advocacy? I mean, there, there is that line in journalism. Yeah, there is. There is. And I think you can be an advocate and be a journalist. I really do. I, I think that uh, pretending that, you know, you have no point of view on a piece when you do have a point of view of a piece is a disservice to the reader. And um, there's a there's a way to 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 um, make a point and have a perspective and nevertheless be fair. I think the journalistic value is fairness that we're looking for, not objectivity. I think objectivity is a myth. Um, and, uh, so the goal is even if you, you know, even if you're writing a piece that's say highly critical of genetically modified food, you have an obligation as a journalist to represent the arguments in favor as, as well as you can, um, and not leave them out of the piece, um, and, and represent the best version of those arguments, not the worst, um, which often happens in so-called advocacy journalism. Um, so but I, I just think that, uh, you know, right now my role is, as, as time has gone on, um, and I'm speaking about this and doing lots of media about it, that, that I am, you know, more of the advocate than the journalist at this, on this issue right now. Michael Pollan will be talking about our national eating disorder at Kane Hall, April 8th, part of the University of Washington's Weight and Wellness Speaker Series that's running through May 19th. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association.